On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we talk about the 10-year challenge on Facebook. Uh, It's a fun thing, right? Just a fun kind of thing. You put your face up there from 10 years ago, you put your face up there today, and everyone can laugh about how you've aged. Well, some people are saying, yeah, you might want to think about doing that because what you're actually doing is help Facebook build facial recognition technology that could someday be used for some spooky stuff. We'll talk about that. Illegal cigarettes. Apparently, it is way more widespread still than most of us realize. Question is, we keep hearing that cigarettes, taxing them, all the rest is going to get rid of the black market. It seems to be growing. Won't the same thing happen with cannabis? And Tiger Cats were in front of Hamilton City Council making a pitch for the Grey Cup bid of 2020. Not the Ticats' fault, not the city's fault, but boy, having a stadium that is undersized and not expandable to Grey Cup potential to Grey Cup size seems to be really causing some problems. We'll talk about that as well. All coming up here on the podcast. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. If you've been on Facebook recently and considering there are something like 2 billion users, I mean, I know Facebook's no longer the cool platform, but there are still 2 billion users around the world. So many of you, I'm guessing, admit it or not, have been on Facebook recently. Uh, You have probably come across this thing, this new challenge, this new idea that people are playing along with. It is called the 10-year challenge. And if this is new to you, if, if you know what it is, you know what it is. If it's new to you, Basically, what they're telling you is take a picture of yourself 10 years ago, take a picture of yourself today, put them together, post them up together, and then people can see how you have or have not aged over the last decade. It's a fun way to mock your friends, to make fun of how the toll that the world or how much weight they've put on or how bad the last 10 years have been, or frankly, to look and go, wow, you really look fantastic considering it's been 10 years one way or the other. But it's just a silly diversion, right? Well, that's what I thought. Didn't dawn on me until I read a piece on Wired.com today. Here's the headline. Facebook's 10-year challenge is just a harmless meme, right? And the author, Kate O'Neill, starts into that and then poses the question, is it really just a harmless meme Or could this be a way, and she's not, I don't think, being crazy, is this possibly a way for Facebook to, in a fun way, a painless way, at least from your perception, a way for Facebook to build face recognition algorithms? Suddenly, this doesn't sound so fun. Now it sounds spooky and creepy and all kinds of other things. Adam Oldfield, you hear him Every Friday morning at 1130 with Bill Kelly here on CHML for Tech Talk. He joins me now. Adam, thanks for doing this today. Hey, my pleasure. Glad to be on with you here, Scott. Well, when I read this, I, my, my now maybe I'm just naive, but my natural reaction when I see people posting these things on Facebook is, oh, that's kind of funny, that's kind of funny. And then I read this story and I start thinking to myself, uh, it's not crazy to think that Google and Facebook and Apple and Amazon and all the rest of these companies are collecting data on us, is it? That's what they do. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know what, we've seen this with the technology updates. And when we're talking about the new iPhones and the Samsungs and, uh, you know, Huawei, uh, you know, facial recognition is becoming almost a standard acceptance of how you're unlocking your devices. Um, and, and, and so, you know, the, the, the idea of what, you know, you brought up in regards to Facebook's 
uh, using this information to perfect their algorithm. I don't think that's going to be the problem. I think the problem is you just giving your face to Facebook and tagging it is, is a problem. Uh, and, and just to highlight that a little bit, the article you're referring to in Wired is the U.S. In Canada, last year in April, just as a side note, Scott, is uh, Facebook in Europe and Canada was launching and rolling out that you could be able to upload your file, your tag, your face, uh, whatever age or otherwise it was, and you would be able to use this facial recognition system to help your own privacy. Ironically, everything you're saying should we be scared of. Uh, Facebook is encouraging people to actually do for their own security. And one of the problems with Facebook is multiple fake accounts get started. People steal a picture and try to be or do that uh, uh, personality uh, identity theft by starting up a Facebook fake Facebook account. Facebook is claiming that their facial recognition system will help prevent people trying to pretend to be you. You know, yeah, and I've talked about this on the show before, my concerns. Uh, I have a sister-in-law that tragically, unfortunately, passed away a few years ago. Recently, I got something on Facebook that said that this particular company was liked by her, and it was like, wait a second. Right. Uh, no, and I checked with the family, and they were like, no, no, no one's using her account. And so, to your point... Any time now that I'm hearing that, well, this is for your good and nothing could possibly go wrong with this and this could never possibly be used in a nefarious or even a a slightly improper way is like, uh, I'm not so sure. Well, and, and there's good and bads when it comes to facial recognition. It's a matter of how much do we want to let up. And you just brought this point up is exactly that. Do we want those circumstances to happen? I mean, especially in the case where, you know, someone that we love or otherwise is, is someone understands that. And, and that's a whole different topic completely of what to do with your social media accounts in the case you pass on. But we, I can say this for certain. Uh, we can see facial recognition in 2019, 2020 is going to expediate in regards to how it's impacting us as a society. Uh, Taylor Swift, and a great example, uh, in December, she uses facial recognition systems for people that walk in uh, to her concerts for the sake of being able to protect uh, herself. I guess she's got a list or whatever, and and I didn't quite understand how that works. I I guess she has somehow access to America's Most Wanted, and if anyone (laughs) or any one of those uh, uh, facial uh, pictures are on this list, If you go to a Taylor Swift concert, it will alert the security. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Talking about facial recognition technology, because this ties into Facebook with their 10-year challenge, which you may or may not have done. And the suggestion that has been made, and I think it's a very interesting suggestion in Wired.com. You can go read the piece. A very interesting suggestion that while this looks like a fun kind of chuckly way to look at yourself and post out how you've changed over the last 10 years, there is a very reasonable chance that Facebook is using this information you're providing to enhance, to work on, to refine its facial recognition technology, which may already be able to spot you as Adam Oldfield just said before the break, if you go into a Taylor Swift concert, there is obviously some technology, but do we have technology right now that could 
anticipate or ex- or figure out what you're going to look like a year or two from now as you age. Well, this may be helping with that. Let me bring Adam back in here. You usually hear Adam with Bill on, at 11.30 every Friday morning, and you will this week, I'm sure, as well. But we're pinching, pinching him right now for a, a guest spot here on the show. Now, Adam, this piece that was written in Wired.com points out three possible uses for facial recognition technology, which is the good, the whatever, and the kind of ugly. Let's start with the good, because there are some reasons or some ways this can be good. And they say, look, we have kids around the world who go missing every year. They may be missing, they may be kidnapped, whatever, for five years, 10 years, 15 years. If we have an ability to have a facial recognition technology that can anticipate aging, we may be able to actually return some of these kids to their homes. That sounds like a positive thing. It does uh, in one compo- uh, component. And again, we're always looking at what is the bright side of things. I mean, there's always two sides of a story. And, and from that perspective, you would think that that would be very positive. I mean, it's sort of similar to where they used to take fingerprints. When I was in school, uh, I think they used to voluntarily, the police would come in and we would take our fingerprints uh, for that purpose. So I guess part of it is we've seen this in 2018. We've seen it in 2017. And we're going to see a lot of it in 2019, Scott. And that is the simple fact. How secure is the information these large companies are holding for two purposes? One, how are they managing to secure it on their own merits from being hacked? And number two, these companies are in front of the Senate, in front of government, and they're being challenged regularly. Apple's been through it. Uh, Amazon's going through it now. Facebook is in the middle of it. Google's going through it. And that is the government wants access yes. to this data. Yes, yes. So, and, yeah. Sorry. No, and, and, and so... Part of that I, so jump in. Sorry, we've got a little I, delay here, but you jump in. Okay, so what my point is, and we can see this if you follow up with what China's doing, that's the fear I look at when we say, yay, but we're saving our children. You used the three examples in Wired Magazine. That is a good thing. The bad thing is, of course, these are private companies. They are mandated under the government and soon to be regulated more so in the future to be giving this data directly to our government agencies, whether it's uh, CSIS, FBI, CIA, all of our secret agencies on both sides of the border are going to, they're going to claim access to this information. How private are we going to be? Not including the fact that the hackers from Russia, India, uh, Romania, wherever, they're also going to be susceptible to gathering this age uh, guessing generation. It's actually quite frightful if you really think about it. So I don't agree with it. Well, and, and for those who don't know what you mean by China, and I hope everyone does, China right now in certain parts, and it's expanding across the country, is using a social credit score that is if you behave a certain way, you're allowed to have freedoms. But if you do something that they don't like, it goes into the computer and you lose freedoms. You lose the right to travel, the right to go to school, the right to be on public transit, whatever. And the way they track you is facial recognition technology. And so you end up, as Adam says, if you believe... And, you know, Adam, it's even, it sounds almost so, I don't know, uh, Orwellian to talk about this, but if you believe and trust wholeheartedly in the goodness and purity and upstandingness of our government, you go, there's no problem. But if you think there's a chance that somebody in the government could use this for nefarious purposes, whether this government or one five governments from now, you do get a little creeped out by the idea. 
Absolutely. And I, I think going to your point and exactly that, I look at China as a great role model and we're not a communist uh, country, uh, but we are on that verge of socialistic. We're doing it for your own protection. That exact technology that exists right now with people's facial uh, recognition is being used for jaywalking. In the last four months, China has actually publicly promoted that they've handed out over 29,000 uh, jaywalking tickets from facial recognition software. So we can see that and go, that's a plus. That's stopping people from crossing the street. That's great. But is it really that wonderful? What happens? And I'll give you an example of, well, how could that be bad? There is an actual bus with a face on it. As it was driving through a crosswalk, it, the young lady who was like a lawyer, like, a, a, you know, Rebecca Wizen and otherwise, or her face got a ticket because <laughs> the recognition isn't perfect. And it looked like she was jaywalking because technically a truck was driving through the crosswalk at that time. So let's be clear. This technology is not perfect yet. And I also have to say, I trust my government to, to make rightful, uh, rightful decisions. I sometimes question the people that are in government mandating and, and, and executing it. So just to be clear on that one, Scott. Adam Oldfield, you can hear him Friday at 1130 a.m. right here. Don't miss him. He's always part of the part of the best part of the week, I'm telling you, on Bill's show. Adam, appreciate it. Thanks for pinch hitting today. Appreciate it. Thanks so much, Scott. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. I don't know how long ago it was. I have completely lost track. But I do recall probably a decade, maybe more than that, 15 years ago. Could be more. Story after story after story back then about cigarettes being smuggled Around the Cornwall area, there was a big deal about people smuggling cigarettes because they wanted to get contraband smokes because it was way cheaper. Anyone else remembering these stories? Well, I kind of thought this had gone away because we don't hear about it anymore. It doesn't seem like it's all that big a deal. It's not in the news nearly as much. Well, I may be wrong on this one. In fact, I'm pretty sure I'm wrong because the numbers of non-legal as in illegal cigarettes that are on the market, apparently continues to be rather staggering. Gary Grant is with the National Coalition Against Contraband Tobacco. It's an advocacy group. Uh, He joins me now. Gary, thanks for doing this today. My pleasure. I was reading some of the numbers that have been put out by you and by others about the numbers of illegal cigarettes that are being produced and sold in this country. And uh, when I read them, and I'll let you jump in with some of those numbers, because when I, to, to make sure I've got it right, because when I heard these, it was nuts. The number of contraband cigarettes that apparently are flooding the market is still incredible. They sure are. What are those numbers? Because when I read them, I thought I must have had it wrong. So you, you tell me what are the numbers that you guys know about. Well, here's the numbers that we get from research that's done by a research firm that, that takes care of these statistics. And, uh, you know, but every quarterly they, they survey smokers. So these are reports from smokers themselves. And uh, the latest survey in Ontario indicates that approximately 30% of all cigarettes that are purchased in Ontario uh, are contraband cigarettes. And that's in mostly southern Ontario and eastern Ontario, and that uh, rises as high as 60 percent in northern Ontario. So that's a lot of contraband, and the uh, result of that is, uh, financially at least, is that the provincial government in Ontario 
is losing uh, $750 million a year in tax revenue to the contraband cells that should be going towards, uh, you know, health, uh, public safety, education. Uh, this province needs some money, and for that uh, type of uh, tax money to just, you know, go through their fingers is ridiculous. Gary, i got to be honest that when you talk about $750 million just in lost revenues, I didn't realize that many people were still smoking, honestly, because the numbers seem to have gone down a lot. The number, this number of smokers compared to 20, 25 years ago seems to be way lower. I'm surprised the number is still that high. Yeah, the number, uh, the number of smokers has, uh, you know, it may not be as, as low as uh, we'd like as Canadians, uh, but the majority of Canadians don't smoke, but those that do uh, are turning in great numbers to the black market. I mean, you know, they're taking those cheap prices. And the, and the sad part with that is people tell me, well, it's a, they're just cheating the tax man. But I always reply that it's not the tax man's money. This is money that should be going into uh, the, the provincial uh, treasury to uh, be spent on money that benefits all Ontarians, not some criminals that are buying big boats and cars and houses uh, with their profits. And and the fact also is that these people that are selling these cigarettes don't respect the laws as far as uh, sales to minors. They don't care how old you are. We're trying to stop smoking with minors in our province, and yet they'll sell a 11- or 12-year-old kid a, a, a package of cigarettes, a bag of cigarettes for less than the cost of a movie ticket. And, and you know, what really is uh, sad to me is the fact that the RCMP has estimated that there's about 175 criminal gangs, criminal organizations that are uh, involved in, in trafficking in this contraband tobacco across Canada, the epicenter being Ontario, and more and more stops that when they're arrested, they're finding guns in the, the cars, cocaine. There's been a recent uptake in uh, opioids, which is a crisis in Ontario, such as fentanyl. And uh, it's a real organized crime enterprise. And not enough people know about it, and that's why you, we try and get as much traction as we can through media outlets like yours and, and coming into areas like we have this week to meet with local politicians and the media. Do you believe this is entirely a cost issue, that contraband can obviously be sold for less because they don't have taxes to go on there, and people will generally or often just gravitate towards cheaper items, therefore the market takes off because I can get these for a third or a half the price? Well, yeah, simply put, it's, a, it's the black market. And any time people want to find something that's cheaper than the the, than the, the, uh, the legal market, they turn to the black market and uh, they're getting them for a fraction of the price of legal cigarettes. But unfortunately, uh, people, uh, you know, just wanting to save a buck don't realize the big impact of it. it. Everything comes at a cost and it comes at a cost of more people smoking, you know, less money in our treasury to do proper things kids starting to smoke and organize crime in our neighborhood. But so but the different. argument, cigarettes, uh, they don't do much advertising anymore. They're not really allowed to. But at right. once upon a time, they argue, they, the advertising was always, look, we have better taste. We have better quality. It sounds like people don't really care. Many people don't really care about quality. As long as I have a cigarette that's giving me my whatever I need, I don't care as long as it's cheap and it's giving me my nicotine, I'm good. That seems to be a, a big part of the issue. So what you're you're doing a 
a small tour around Southern Ontario this week. Right. Uh, what are you, I mean, this seems like a massive problem. What are you hoping to accomplish by this? Well, we've been doing this for quite a while now, and, and uh, the, uh, the, the, the what we try to do is, as I said, most Canadians don't smoke. Um, most people think, hey, my kids don't have access to cigarettes, but lo and behold, they do. I teach at a community college in Toronto, and I always ask my students who are underage, if they uh, you know where contraband cigarettes are and where they can get them, and you know ninety percent of them say, of course we do. We're not, you know, what do you think we are? <laughs> so they, they they know where to get them, and parents don't realize that they, that they can probably get them. Probably so. What the tour is all about, it, it particularly, is just to raise awareness. I and mean, the more we talk to people like you, and we were on uh, City Matters the other day in Hamilton, hoping to. You know, to, to 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 raise the alarm bells with the general public, so that they can uh, ask their politicians to take a tougher stance on this. And we are meeting with the politicians as well. In particular, uh, the government, uh, the current government, and their recent uh, fall economic update has uh, uh, indicated they're going to take some very stringent measures against contraband tobacco, which has been lacking over the last, uh, you know, several years. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Chatting about contraband cigarettes. It is a, apparently still, even though we don't really think of it, most of us don't really think of it very much. It is still a huge problem in the province of Ontario. One in three, apparently, cigarettes that are purchased are contraband. Talking with Gary Grant, who is the na- with the National Coalition Against Contraband Tobacco. And Gary, I want to branch out just a little bit, if I can here, because you clearly know and you've, you've spent a lot of time on the problem of contraband when it comes to cigarettes. Uh, we've heard a lot in recent months that legalizing cannabis will kill a black market and bring it under government control and everything will be good. And, and yet you've just spent the last four, five, six minutes telling us that with cigarettes being under government control and tax and everything else, it's done little or nothing to end the black market there. It may have even built it up more. Do you believe that the same thing is going to happen with cannabis in time in this province? Well, you know, I've spent a lot of time with with contraband tobacco, but uh, I specifically have spent a lot of time, uh, 39 and a half years, as a Toronto police officer. And I know that uh, where there's a, an organization that's willing to sell a product cheaper than the government is selling it for, or cheaper than legally being sold, that that's going to be a market. And uh, I know that the federal government, who who is now uh, sort of left it to the provinces to deal with how they're going to sell the cannabis, uh, they think their strategy of, at least in the beginning, keeping uh, taxes uh, lower than you might expect and uh, having them sold uh, in, uh, you know, in public places is going to keep uh the black market out but i know the black market all too well i know that organized crime uh, will always try and find a way to make a buck to, to usurp whatever the government's selling and doesn't have most of the other products like cigarettes and uh that you know i mean uh, kids are going to look for you know for their for their their uh, cannabis and people are going to look for cannabis after hours and maybe they run out of what they've legally purchased and or just plain fact that they've I've had people tell me, though, uh, I'm going to stick with my dealer that I've been using for the last 10 years, which was clearly illegal. 
and uh, and the fact that you know they'll, they'll probably undercut the price. So you know, I wish the government and, and the law enforcement well, but I expect there'll be a flourishing black market. Your your idea, your point about the money, uh, Statistics Canada this week pointed out that a, an an illegal, uh, not legal gram of pot right now is about fifty percent cheaper than the ones you could get at the legal outlets that are going online and buying it now. So even before, which I think everybody expects in time, the taxes will go up, even before they do that, the recipe or the ingredients are already there for a flourishing black market. Well, like look at the cigarettes. Uh, People don't know what's in those contraband cigarettes. I'm not suggesting uh, that uh, people think legal cigarettes are healthy, but it's the most highly regulated market in Canada. But the contraband uh, cigarettes are totally unregulated, and people haven't got a clue what's in them. But, uh, you know, they want their tobacco fix, and, and they want it as cheap as they can get. So I expect the same to happen with uh, with cannabis. In the cigarette industry, and I think going back, and it ties into both cigarettes and cannabis at this point, in the cigarette industry over recent years, one of the tools that has been used to try to get people to stop is to drive up and up and up and up the taxes, which means that now I don't even know what a carton of cigarette costs these days. I think you have to take out a second mortgage to buy one. I'm not really sure. But that doesn't seem that it has necessarily stopped people from smoking by what you're telling me. It's just pushed people to the contraband market. Well, that's the point. I, I you know, I, I, I don't know. Uh, I know basically what they cost. It's, they're very expensive. I've never smoked in my life. But I keep hearing from people, uh, you know, about the taxes. So, uh, and I'm not complaining, and I'm not suggesting that the taxes should be lowered to enable people to smoke cigarettes. What I'm saying is that if you have uh, a market that you're trying to eliminate for the health of Canada, why on earth would you leave the big void there with the black market? Do something to mitigate it. Do something to close up its... uh, its successes and and uh, and really hit it hard because it's just too easy to turn to that market to continue smoking. And just we have a minute or so left here. You pointed out very briefly, and I want to get to this because I think it's really important. Whether it's cigarettes, whether it's cannabis, eventually, you were pointing out where this money goes, and it may sound like it's benign and ah, who cares? A lot of this money apparently is going places we don't really want it to go to. Oh, for sure. It's totally uh, it's totally organized crime involved. And uh, none of us can believe that uh, organized crime uh, groups are civic-minded. They're plowing the money back into their other legal enterprises. And, uh, you know, when did anyone ever put up a sign uh, coming into a community, you know, being welcomed by the Rotary Club or something like that, where walk- organized crime is organized- welcoming you in? They're bad news for any community they're in. And I'd just like to say that Quebec has done something very, very good They've they've reduced their rate to 12% over the last six or seven years by introducing legislation, and we're encouraging the provincial government to do the same. They've indicated they're going to do something similar, and we're hoping that, uh, you know, I mean, I can get into any details if you have the time, but uh, we're hoping that our provincial government will follow the, the, the role model that Quebec has done to put money back in their treasury, $180 million, uh, the last couple of years instead of losing money, and mitigating organized crime and reducing their contraband rate to 12%. Gary Grant with the National Coalition Against Contraband Tobacco. Appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. My pleasure. Have a good night. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to talk about this great cup bid that came in front of Hamilton City Council today. First things first, even before I get to that though, 
We criticize at times Hamilton City Council. We sometimes, you know, take issue with things they do or whatever else. Got to make a point here. Got to give them props. They are earning their money today. They started a general issues committee at 9.30 this morning. It is now 7.11. They are still going. They are still meeting today. They are still in camera. We don't have anybody from city council. That had been the plan today. We were going to get one of the councillors on. We don't have it because they are still stuck in camera, in council, having their meeting about a whole bunch of issues. One of them, though, was the Grey Cup bid. And here is where things stand right now. And before I get to the bid, I, I do want to say something in... I suppose it's in defense of the Ticats. I suppose it's in the defense of the city. I suppose it's in defense of a lot of different things. The bid that came forward today, which we'll talk about in just a second, seems to obviously be necessitated by the fact that we don't have a stadium that despite promises, despite assurances, despite guarantees from the province and Ontario Sports Solutions and Infrastructure Ontario and all those different groups when this thing was going through the endless debates and discussions and fights, despite all those assurances that this was a stadium that was going to be expandable to Grey Cup size. And the number that was originally thrown out there and talked about almost as religion, as a sacred number, this would be a stadium that could be expanded to 40,000 seats. That was a number we heard over and over and over again. This was a stadium that was built, remember when the fight was on about whether we were going to get this stadium, where it was going to go, all the rest, the province said, you will only be able to have a stadium if you have a legacy tenant. Now, the legacy tenant was the Ticats, but the other issue was we want to be able to have legacy events here, and one of those obviously was Grey Cups. So 40,000 seats, which at one time... At one time, it seems to have moved from that, but at one time was the number the CFL was saying they needed to have for a great cup. This stadium was going to have 40,000 seats. Well, it is abundantly, obviously clear there is no chance this stadium could be expanded to 40,000 seats. There is no way you could put 40,000. The only way you could bring this stadium to 40,000 seats. Now picture it with me for a second here. Right now, Tim Hortons Field has a capacity of roughly 24,000. 12 it's two sides, 12,000 on each side. Give or take. To get that means to get it even up to 35,000, to get it up to even 35,000 would mean you would have to put as many seats in the end zone, the south end zone, that's the mountain, that's not the scoreboard side, that's the, the other one. You would have to put as many seats in that end zone as you have on one of the complete sides of the stadium. Again, give or take a few. Now think about that for a second. The width of the field is half or two-fifths of the length of the field. You've got to somehow put as many people in that compressed area as you do in the entire length of the stadium. Plus, if you can picture Tim Horton's field, at the south end and at the north end, there are stairs coming down. Well, you can't block those stairs. The fire marshal would never, ever allow that. You have to, if there was ever to be an emergency, people have to be able to get out of there in reasonable way. So now... Not only can you not, you have to get all those 11,000 seats 
the equivalent of a length of the stadium, two decks into an end zone. Now the end zone can't even go the full width because you now have to have room for the stairs. Meaning if you want to get those 11,000 seats just to get it to 35,000, you would probably have to have bleachers that were about 26 stories high. I mean, you would need a Sherpa guide to get you to the top seats if you were in the last row. You'd have to be given oxygen tanks you'd be up so high. There is no chance this stadium is expandable to 40 or realistically even 35,000 seats. That is not realistic. That is not the fault of the city. That is not the fault of the Tiger Cats. That is the fault of the builders, of the province, of the people who were behind this, who didn't build, who didn't build a stadium that would allow for these kind of things. So what do you do if you now want to host a Grey Cup, but you don't have a 40,000 seat stadium? And by the way, Hamilton is competing for the 2020 Grey Cup against Saskatchewan and Montreal, Saskatchewan Stadium new stadium seats 40,000, give or take, and Montreal could move and would move the Grey Cup into Olympic Stadium, and I don't know what that hosts now, but 50,000, certainly more than 24,000. So what do you do if you're the Hamilton Tiger Cats? What do you do if you're the city of Hamilton and you want to host a Grey Cup? How do you put people into this stadium? How do you bring the attendance up? Because keep one other thing in mind. You could hold a Grey Cup with 24,000 people. But the CFL, when they award the Grey Cup, they, they have a financial guarantee that you have to meet. Now, how it works is I'm not exactly clear, but let's say they say to the Ticats, who would be the team, the group that's making the bid with the help of the city, that you are guaranteed, you have to guarantee us a profit of $10 million. I don't know what the number is. I have no idea what the number is. I don't, that could be way too high. Maybe it's $2 million. I have no idea. Let's say $2 million. Even so, if you now have to put this thing together and you've only got two-thirds as many seats as Saskatchewan, as Regina, that means theoretically you're going to have to have ticket prices that are a third higher than them because you're missing a third of the seats. So now we in Hamilton who decide, hey, I'd really love to go to a Grey Cup game. You're looking at ticket prices being considerably higher than anywhere else. See where the problems start with this. And again, I am not pointing my finger at the Ticats or at the city for this. This is entirely a provincial mess that was left for us. It was a Now, you can blame the city for the way the whole debate and stadium thing was held, and absolutely I do. I don't want to really go down that road again. There is blame to be had everywhere. But ultimately, the end of this thing, the fact that we have a stadium that can't expand properly, that doesn't even have structural designs and structural engineering designs to find out how many seats we can put in because that was supposed to be done. But when the whole litigation was going on, it still hadn't been done. And the city took that on and said with money that it withheld to pay, that money would then be put towards us. So, so the, the designs, we don't even know how many seats can go into this thing yet. So what happens? Well, the Ticats come in front of city council today and they propose a number of different possibilities. One is 
well, all the, it seems that all the different possibilities would involve some, a small number of temporary seats going at the north end. That's under the scoreboard. But as, again, if you've ever been to Tim Hortons Field, you understand there's not a ton of room to put tons of seats there because you can't have them go in front of the scoreboard and they can't go onto the field. So you're, you're very limited how many can go there. Maybe a couple thousand, maybe. Now, the other option, and now on top of that, here are your options. One option is to put some seats in the south end zone, where we're talking about, where they now have that concrete entryway and concrete concourse. But how many you could put there? I don't know, 5,000, 6,000, maybe, 8,000, maybe if you squeeze hard. But you're getting up to 30,000 people total, not 40. Another option is to put some bleachers there, And leave some other space for standing room or milling about. And the third option, which I find so interesting, is that, and I'm reading from Steve Milton's piece that's already online that he wrote today from the meeting. The other proposes no extra seats in the south part of the stadium. So putting up no additional bleachers. So you've got 24,000 seats plus the maybe 2,000 that you're putting at the north end. So 26,000 seats. No extra seats in the south part of the stadium. Instead, dedicating the large plaza area, normally outside the stadium boundaries, to, quote, social media viewing with fans free to roam, as they already are at a number of area in Tim Horton's field. So one of the proposals then becomes, we are going to have a giant standing room area to try and bring people into the game. Now, here's what I want to hear from you. When you hear this stuff, And when you, first of all, probably get upset about the way our stadium has been left, and you should be upset. This is not what we bargained for. This is not right. This is not what Hamilton should be stuck with to have to come up with, and the Ticats should not have to come up with these crazy creative ideas to try and make a Grey Cup work. This should be a stadium that is amenable to these kind of events, but it is not. Nonetheless, when you hear these ideas of potentially having a giant standing room area, social area, it was referred to in quotes as a social media area. I don't really know what that means exactly. You stand there and you text or you tweet. I'm not really sure. I don't think that's what it means entirely. But do you think that we could actually pull off a Grey Cup in this city? Do you believe that we, with being handcuffed with the stadium that we have been left with, do you believe, regardless of what efforts are put in, do you, be, do you believe that we can pull off a good Grey Cup in the city? Remember, 1996, it was not a good Grey Cup. It was a disaster. We were, they were give, selling tickets two for one or four for one or something at Tim Hortons the day before. You bought a double-double, you got Grey Cup tickets, basically. Considering now we are probably looking at vastly fewer seats available than at any other Grey Cup since probably 1905 or something. Certainly in the modern era. They had 33,000, I believe, in Toronto a few years ago. This would be sounding like it's even smaller than that. Do you believe that we can pull off a Grey Cup? Maybe you do. I, I, I would love to hear from some optimists because I want to be optimistic about this. I, I do want this city to have a Grey Cup. I do. I think there are fans here and people here who deserve it. 
And I applaud, honestly, the Hamilton Ticats for trying to come up with something creative. But do you believe that it can work? Do you believe that this stadium and the restrictions that are imposed upon those who use it, do you believe that it's possible? Are the conditions in place that with creative ideas and good organization, that this could be a fantastic, amazing, great cup that doesn't lose money, that sells out, that everyone feels happy about at the end? Or do you look at this and say, oh, we just don't have the space. The stadiums that have 40,000, sure. Edmonton that has 60, sure. Somewhere that has 33 or 35, sure. We're talking 24,000 seats, maybe 26,000 by the time you put a few empty, uh, a few extras in the other end. What do you think? I listened to parts of this today. I read the stories. I want to be an optimist about this. I want to believe that we can do this. I want to believe this can work. Here's my fear ultimately about this. I think I know Hamilton reasonably well. I think I know sports fans and I think I know people in the city reasonably well. If we have only two-thirds of the seats that are available as some of the other places that would host games and ticket prices have to be increased incrementally to cover that, people may really want the Grey Cup and then when the tickets go on sale and they are, if they are, significantly more than they might have been in other places or that they have been in other places, people here are going to feel salty. They are going to be salty. They're going to be sour. They're going to be upset because they're going to feel like they're being gouged. It all goes back to the stadium that was left for the city of Hamilton. Let me throw one other thing out there, by the way, which I did hear today and I, I, I did, I, I got to work on my math here a little bit because I'm, I'm not quite catching this right. There was a, as part of the, the proposal, as part of the presentation, the suggestion is, the suggestion was that, and I'm just scrolling down in the story so I can read this properly. Again, going to Steve Milton's piece, you can find it at thespec.com right now. Apparently, the assumption is, the belief is, the pitch is that twenty to 30,000 visitors will come to Hamilton for that game. Twenty to 30,000 people are going to come to the city for that game. Bringing in an economic boost to the city of $100 million. Well, here's where, here's where I become a skeptic. Because if we only have 24,000 seats, maybe 26,000, and let's say 5,000 standing room seats. So if we only have maybe 30,000 places in the stadium, period. And let's say 12,000, 15,000 season ticket holders want to get in there and a bunch of other Hamiltonians want to get in there. Let's say now there are 10,000 available spots for other people. Well, I don't think we're going to have 30,000 people flooding into Hamilton if only 10,000 people are going to the game. And then, and then, if you're talking about 10,000, let's say you're talking 20,000 people coming into the city to get to a hundred million dollar boost to the local economy. That means every single one of those 20,000 people has to spend five grand when they come here. So if you're coming with a husband and wife or with your buddy, that means for a couple, $10,000 is going to be spent in Hamilton that week. 
Now, keep in mind, that does not include your airfare. That airfare is looked after elsewhere. And we don't have 20,000 hotel rooms in this city, so people are going to be staying outside in Niagara and Burlington, Oakville, Toronto, wherever else. So $100 million? Really? Uh, Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't have a game, and that doesn't mean that we wouldn't have a boost to the economy, but I'm skeptical of that number. Let's just say that. Look, I, I, I sincerely, I sincerely do wish and hope that we can get a Grey Cup here at some point, whether it's 2020 or some other time. But boy, I just can't help but feel that the situation that we have been handed with the stadium has made it so much more difficult than other cities are going to be faced with. So it's so much more difficult than it is for other cities when we have to somehow, when the Ticats and the city and Tourism Hamilton and all the rest have to somehow come up with solutions when what was left here is not what we had been told was going to be left here. Again, I'm not pointing the finger at the Ticats or the city on this one. We were repeatedly told the stadium that was going to be left here after the Pan Am Games was going to be transferable, was going to be expandable into a Grey Cup viable facility. And this is not anywhere close to what other stadia across this country that are hosting Grey Cup games are. That, to me, is is a shame. And the fact that the Ticats now have to scramble and the city and Tourism Hamilton and all the rest, that they all have to scramble and try and come up with unique ways, way more unique than any other place does, That that's so unfortunate. And that is such a slap to this city that that's what we've been left with. That we should ne- that should never have been the case. And yet that's what we're left with. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.